Turpentine is excited to announce our new show, The AI Daily Brief, hosted by Nathaniel Whittemore. The AI Daily Brief is a daily show that covers all things AI, from legislation to new technologies in the market, to the philosophical and ethical debates around generalized intelligence. If you're looking for an edge to stay up to date on everything AI, subscribe to The AI Daily Brief at the link in the description. I try to sometimes put myself in the shoes of, you know, let's say the artists or the people making these images, photographers, whoever. We were the first site ever, and I think the only site, where if there was a prompt on our site and someone references his name, we directly link back to his page. It might be generally okay to make things. In fact, many brands are perfectly fine with fan art or whatever. And there's kind of this question of commercial use. That's where things kind of like stop. If this whole thing is very gradual, then I think probably society would find like some way to assimilate to it. If it's vastly faster than that, then I think I think that we definitely need to do something about that. I think that who it's impacting like very much needs to be considered. Some craft that they've been doing for a decade or two, you can't ask people to evolve and upskill. Hello, and welcome to The Cognitive Revolution, where we interview visionary researchers, entrepreneurs, and builders working on the frontier of artificial intelligence. Each week, we'll explore their revolutionary ideas and together we'll build a picture of how AI technology will transform work, life, and society in the coming years. I'm Nathan LeBenz, joined by my co-host, Eric Torenberg. Hello, and welcome back to The Cognitive Revolution. My guest today is Suhail Doshi, founder and CEO of Playground AI. This is a special episode for me because Suhail was our very first guest on the show almost a year ago, and today he returns as roughly our 100th guest. Of course, it's been a busy year for everyone in AI, and Suhail and team have been hard at work building and releasing a huge number of new features designed to help anyone create and edit images like a pro. Most recently, they've trained and open-sourced a new foundation image generation model called Playground V2, which is preferred to Stable Diffusion XL some 70% of the time while being built on the same exact architecture a decision that Suhail made so that the open source community can easily adapt and apply all the surrounding tools that they've already developed. If you're wondering how it makes business sense for a company like Playground to give the fruits of such a major investment away for free, Suhail's perspective on the state of AI art in general and on image generation in particular might surprise you. Because yes, of course, it's undeniable that the state of the art has continued to advance, and today not only Midjourney and Dolly 3, but also Stable Diffusion XL and Playground V2 can generate excellent quality, nearly photorealistic images with increasingly fine-grained prompting controls. And yet, in Suhail's analysis, we're still only at roughly the GPT-2 stage of image generation AI development just scratching the surface of all the promise that AI-based image manipulation still holds. Most of the use cases, as Suhail has come to understand them in talking to Playground users, are not very well served by existing models, and the leading AI artists use a mix of models and different complementary tools to achieve their best results, meaning that things overall are still a bit too complicated for everyday casual users. So what's missing from this picture? a unified vision model that can do it all, understanding, generating, and also manipulating images in all sorts of useful, discrete ways. This does not yet exist, and the leading large language model developers don't seem to be really focused on it. So Suhail and team are setting out to build it over the course of 2024. As always, if you're finding value in the show, we'd ask that you take a moment to share it with friends. 
It has been incredible to see how the show has traveled and how the audience has grown entirely through word of mouth. And I think this episode would be perfect for both the artists and the application developers in your life. Now, I hope you enjoy this conversation about the state and future of AI vision and image generation with Suhail Doshi of Playground AI. Suhail Doshi, founder and CEO of Playground AI, online at playgroundai.com. Welcome back to the Cognitive Revolution. Uh, thanks for having me. Yeah, I'm excited. So you were our very first guest when we launched the show almost a year ago now, and I think you'll be roughly our 100th guest. So this is a cool way to, to celebrate having put out a lot of episodes and another trip around the sun. And I'm excited to catch up with you on everything that's been going on in the world of pixels, both broadly and, and at your company over the last year. For starters, I just listened to another interview that you did with Swix and Alessio on the Latent Space podcast. I thought that was really good and figured we'd try to cover, of course, there'll be some overlap, but try to cover largely some different topics today. I guess for starters, I'd love to hear kind of, you know, what's new at Playground? What's new in image generation? Yeah, I'm sure there's a lot and I'll, I'll, I'll have some follow-ups, but I would love to hear how you would kind of summarize the journey over the last year. Yeah, I think the, the journey over the last year has had like some interesting highlights and some interesting kind of like lowlights. I'll, I'll, I'll start with the lowlights because even though it may sound slightly depressing, I actually think it's like the most exciting bit. You know, of course, everybody knows that like, um, you know, things like Dolly 3 have come out, Journey V6 has come out, um, Stability I released uh, SDXL back in, uh, I want to say like June, July. Um, so there's been a lot of new um, foundation models that have kind of come out. But I would mostly say that I have been fairly disappointed by the progress. And one way that I would maybe articulate this is that mostly the models are used for art and art has some value and utility in the world. But for the most part, we haven't really seen that like general model high utility that you get out of these language models, right? And so to kind of just like harken back a little bit, you know, maybe three or four years ago, when we looked at language, we sort of said, you know, what are these, what do, what do these AI models really do? And they, they might summarize something, hallucinate, maybe they have um, sentiment analysis was kind of like a use case that was touted a lot. Many startups were built just doing sentiment analysis, those sorts of things. Like the models couldn't rhyme, the models couldn't really write code, the models couldn't really do anything. So there was like these very specific use cases. And then um, as, as, as folks at you know, either Anthropic or OpenAI noted, with, with scaling laws that they they felt like maybe the models could get better and more generally useful. And I, the only reason why I'm taking us through this like kind of hopefully well-charted history that people know that are in the AI world, but if you're not in the AI world, um, that's kind of like a rough snapshot of, I think, what happened with, with text. And now you have things like ChatGPT and it's writing code and you can ask it questions. You don't have to go to Stack Overflow anymore and, and whatnot. That really hasn't happened with Vision at all. You know, what we got out of Vision was I can make really amazing sort of like art. I can make a meme. I can make something cool. I can show it to my my friend. Maybe I can make like a book cover. Maybe I can make, um, you know, one use case for some of these models is uh, making coloring books. <laughs> um, but the models, and the models are really great at extrapolating like interesting characters or subjects or environments and, and, uh, and making art. But they're not very good at kind of doing anything else. And they're not good at uh, manipulating pixels in any other kind of way. And so I actually was maybe expecting last year that perhaps like 
the pace and momentum would be a lot faster. But it just turned out that, that wasn't the case. And so uh, maybe the most the thing that I'm most excited about is that it kind of feels like vision is like a year, like a year or two off from this like big moment that languages had. Um, and there's far more huge quantities of vision data compared to text. Yeah, no doubt about that. There's plenty of my dad has this uh, crazy dad joke of, you know, we're running out of pixels and the pixel mines are are getting depleted. And uh, the reality is obviously there's there's plenty of pixels flying around if you can figure out how to use them. That is an interesting perspective. Would you, this is, it's maybe so strange as to not be useful, but would you say we're at like a GPT-2 level, you know, relative to some inflection point that you're expecting for? Yeah, it's funny. It's funny that you asked that question because that is exactly how I phrase it uh, at our own company. I Or if I'm talking to people that we're trying to hire, I'm kind of like, you know, I'm not even sure we're at G- even GPT-3 level, even though there's this feeling maybe last year that perhaps maybe we were, but I actually don't think, I don't even think, uh, sorry, that we were at like something greater than a GPT-2. And I, and I think the continuum of, you know, where we were two, three years ago, with GANs and stuff, things have significantly improved, but the overall utility hasn't really significantly improved. You know, we've got our kind of like, like text, we have our sort of three or four very you know, simple use cases you know you can make art you can make um you can remove something an, an object you know with the pixel phones removing things um you can remove a background and that's about it that's about roughly what you can do with images whereas in the domain of text it's like the long tail of what you you feel like you can do the value that you get is just so much more significant um and so i say that i say that this is like mildly depressing in some ways but I'm very excited and I'm working on it because I feel very excited about the possibilities that actually it's this huge open field of unsolved problems. And now there's a lot of momentum, a lot of effort and a lot of desire to make it better. Yeah, that's really interesting. I mean, I think for a lot of people that probably even who are in the AI space pretty deeply, I think that would probably come as a bit of a surprise. You know, as you were talking like I I have remarkably little information about who the cognitive revolution audience is, but we're definitely not like an AI art or you know image generation or like sp- a pixel specialist show. So I would imagine most people have a lot more experience with your chat GPTs and your clouds as opposed to with image creation. But from the outside, you know, and I use these tools like I'm not an artist, but I use them periodically. It definitely feels like things have gotten a lot better, right? I, I rewind to a couple of years ago when I was seeing this stuff start to bubble up on Twitter and, you know, seeing Rivers Have Wings, the OG true legend accounts. Rivers Have Wings, if you're listening, check your DMs. I want to have you on the show. But, you know, that stuff was pretty gnarly. And it was like, wow, it's amazing that you can do anything. But it definitely was not passing any sort of visual... Turing test equivalent or whatever. It was sort of like swirling colors and backgrounds and abstract shapes. And now we're getting kind of this like amazing photorealistic thing of kind of solved hands. We're starting to see models with like text, text synthesis and that kind of thing. So it's definitely, definitely on an amazing pace. It's definitely not like hitting some odd, uh, weird asymptote quite yet. Given that progress, you said utility hasn't grown as much as you would have hoped. Is it the case that we maybe naively misunderstand or or kind of misconceive of what actually drives utility? Like the fact that we're able to generate these photorealistic outputs today 
is just not enough for like a lot of the utility that you're looking for? I, I generally think like from the most part, it's just like at the moment, mostly a lack of imagination. It is somewhat hard to imagine extrapolation from like these big models. I think, you know, even at GPT-3, it wasn't like there were a huge, there was like this massive audience um, thinking that like, I think if you had gone back in time to maybe when GPT-3 like came out, maybe six months late, later, I don't know that there was like this very, very big audience that thought for sure, like what we were getting out of GPT-4 was coming. I don't think that I, I thought at maybe even kind of like last year, I had, I had access to GPT-4 maybe in, I want to say like October of the year before last. And I'm not, and I, the first thing I did with it was I wanted to see if it could find uh, vulnerabilities in my computer programs. Like, how good would this be at like finding security issues? You know, that was like the use case I had in mind. But I'm not sure that I fully like internalized even yeah back that year that like this thing would be so instrumental in like writing code as good as it is. And I, I wasn't sure that I, I you know I thought that it could um, answer like relatively difficult questions about my life um, or things happening in my life or if I have like a leak in a ceiling, how might I solve that? You know. I don't think I, I don't think people thought that it could be, uh, not very many people thought that it could be um, that powerful. And so I think like, that's just like similar, true, similarly true in images, you know, you're just sort of like, okay, it can make this like beautiful art, it's like really fun and novel. Um, but we, you know, what, what do I use this for day to day? Because you actually look at images, you know, it can't, it's not, it's kind of struggles making logos. It sort of struggles with spatial reasoning. It's certainly like things like in-painting or editing are extremely difficult. Um, we're still sort of talking like eyes are still sort of like a bit strange hands aren't always coherent sometimes it adds kind of like an extra letter if you're ask, asking for text so there are like these little things that we see are present in the models but there are some i think there are like much bigger things about vision just generally that are probably like can lead to like a very big general model um like one of the things that we tend to think about at playground is how we might achieve a unified vision model Right. And there's like three, three pieces to at least graphics, which is just a subcomponent of vision. Um, you know, there's creating pixels, there's editing pixels, and then there's understanding them. So GPT-4 means like a good example of like a very rudimentary model that's like getting better at understanding things. Right now it's quite good at like captioning, but there's like other reasoning thing, capabilities for vision um, or just like understanding an image or even a video. Like you can't do video, for example. Right now we're kind of stuck on creating. But we're not very good at like editing things. Like one thing that hasn't really happened yet is there hasn't been a very big effort on manipulating real pixels of, of real images. Or sorry, pixels of real images. Right, you're mostly dealing with synthetic images, but we're not doing a whole lot with um, real photographs. Where I think there's probably a lot more utility and a lot more value. Like I'll give an example. If my son was smiling uh, for a Christmas card that we wanted to send out late last year. It's really hard to get like the dog and the kid and you know, everybody in the picture getting them smile appropriately. But it'd be sure it would be nice if I could just be like, hey, you know, highlight his face and just say, can you make him smile? Like you're, or take two images, one where he's smiling, one where I'm not, and like kind of finding a way to like merge those two things together. That's like a very simple application. And so you can kind of like imagine what the other kinds of general useful things that you could do with manipulating pixels. And that's like maybe the tip of the very, very tip of the iceberg. So I just imagine that there's a lot more provision. Um, you know, understanding the context of like a video scene. Another example, like if you asked a model to look at like three minutes of a video and what happened, um, could the model like reason about that? 
So like just a bunch of like those kinds of things. And so there's just like this general lack of, I would say significant investment with regard to trying to make a great general vision model. Hey, we'll continue our interview in a moment after a word from our sponsors. The Brave Search API brings affordable developer access to the Brave Search Index, an independent index of the web with over 20 billion web pages. So what makes the Brave Search Index stand out? One, it's entirely independent and built from scratch. That means no big tech biases or extortionate prices. Two, it's built on real page visits from actual humans, collected anonymously, of course, which filters out tons of junk data. And three, the index is refreshed with tens of millions of pages daily, so it always has accurate, up-to-date information. The Brave Search API can be used to assemble a data set to train your AI models and help with retrieval augmentation at the time of inference, all while remaining affordable with developer-first pricing. Integrating the Brave Search API into your workflow translates to more ethical data sourcing and more human representative data sets. Try the Brave Search API for free for up to 2,000 queries per month at brave.com slash API. Yeah, I, I would love to hear a little bit more about the use cases. And also, I'm curious about what shortcomings you are finding in GPT-4V. I have used it pretty successfully, actually, at least for the, the use cases that I've tried. One that was like a kind of mind-blowing moment was I took my kids, and I can definitely relate to the difficulty of getting them all to smile in a photo because we're up to three. And, you know, two out of three feels like the best we could ever manage to do. But I took them to Salem, Massachusetts, leading up to Halloween because we were out there for an event that my wife was organizing. And it was actually a you know, fun little day, but I, I came across this parking sign. And this had just at the time, there was the, the famous one on Twitter where somebody was like, I'm never getting a parking ticket again, because he took the picture of you know the eight different parking signs and said, can I park here right now? My version of that was the Salem version, where it had some message about like, you know, special parking rules for October. And at the bottom, it said Salem PD. And I was like, what's going on here? And it was able from the Salem PD and the like special rules for October to infer that it appears that you're in Salem, Massachusetts, which has this like, you know, historical, you know, connection to witchcraft and whatever. And now it's like a holiday, you know, destination leading up to Halloween. And so it's probably that that you're dealing with. And I was like, man, this thing, there's a lot of knowledge in there that, you know, it's kind of able to tap into. And we've had really good luck with that at Waymark too, where we just use it to filter user images. Uh, we've long had this product experience where we'll pull in a ton of images, like every image on your website, if you're a small business, just for your convenience. So you don't have to go you know, load them into our product manually. So we, we kind of pull them in, but then we get all kinds of crap, right? So like, how do we filter that to use the relevant stuff? And GPT-4V is awesome at that for us, literally just saying like, here's the profile of the business, you know, which of these images would be good to use, which, which would not be good to use. I've done a little bit with breaking video into frames and trying to get it to understand that as well. I would say I've like fully characterized how well that can do. But anyway, those have been my experiences. Have you, what things have you seen or done that you feel like, you know, leave something to be desired in the GPT-4V performance? I think like one small, you know, one, one easy one is that, G GPT-4V is 
not always great with like certain tasks like um, image segmentation. It can be kind of weak at that occasionally. And you need in, in image image segmentation or like finding the right bounding box for certain images tends to be extremely useful. I mean, they're just better models than GPT-4B and, and arguably a lot faster. And uh, like segment anything is a really great example. You can use Dino plus segment anything together to achieve really interesting state of art results. And that's like a very simple use case that's been going on for a long time in AI that probably could, could greatly gener- benefit from a general model. Um, so I think the promise of something like uh, 4B is really, really outstanding. That task is so valuable for a whole bunch of use cases related to like camera, anything related to cameras is a really good example of that. Sometimes, sometimes I feel, I still think there are like some issues with hallucinations with its like descriptions of some of the images, but it's, a, it, but I love 4B. My, my, my favorite use case is like taking screenshots on my desktop computer and then asking it a question, asking it to like solve some problem of mine. Like lately I've been just doing this funny thing where I'll just like take screenshots of um, errors in my code <laughs> and asking it to like basically help me fix whatever the problem is. It's, it's almost like I can be really lazy about about things. But I had been thinking that how how valuable it would be to sort of like have, if it, it was surely, surely would be valuable if um, there was a model that was able to just like stare at my computer with me and kind of help me along as I go. And I hope someone at OpenAI is sort of working on some some something that can like be like, hey, I, I might be able to help you with that. Um, you know, I'm kind of pairing with you as you're working, but I think that's going to take like a lot, a lot of work. And, and that's just, that's just one domain. I think of like pixels and images, you know, it's just, that's just understanding what it's seeing. Um, that's not even necessarily, um, manipulating graphics in any kind of way. Yeah. Certainly the fact that it is all text out is a major limiting factor in terms of what it can do with images. Because all I do is spend my time on vision. I spend a lot of time about what are the major benefits of vision versus say language. Not just in like the training data, but also in like the outputs. And I'll give you another example of something. You know, one thing that's like really challenging with text is it takes a lot of effort to read text. It takes a lot of patience. It takes a lot of focus. <laughs> and, and we kind of continue to live in a world where there's even less and less of that. But one thing that vision is what, you know, graphics or vision is really good at is just like a very amazing visual explanation of something. Often there are circumstances where you want a visual visual uh, explanation of something, right? We see this all around us, right? We, we know when we read a book and we see a diagram or something that it can be very valuable or a graph, right? A graph can be extremely valuable. Um, but there are other modalities like a video that's explaining something to me is really valuable. Audio is obviously valuable, but it tends to, you know, there, there are major areas where like um, things are, tend to lack in that regard. You know, for example... There are a lot of people that are just kind of waiting around for these image models to figure out how to make diagrams, flowcharts, diagrams, ways to like be able to understand something um, about the text. That'd be one thing. We, we all can very much tell when something doesn't look like us. Like one thing we learned over the last year is that humans are really good at looking at faces. It can really tell when something is off. You might have 10 friends that tell you that you know, that cartoon version of you looks like you, but sometimes when you look at it, you're like, that's um you're almost offended by it and uh and so i think that there's all these different kinds of um use cases that are just very unsatisfied um and that and but i mostly think that like language doesn't accommodate uh as as well as it could and it will never accommodate uh, and it's totally reasonable yeah those are two good examples you know I've, i've tried to work around the graphic thing a little bit by asking gpt4 to create a 
text base, you know, basically to follow, there's like a bunch of, as you're probably aware, there's a bunch of different flow chart diagram kind of syntaxes that you can use. So I've asked it to create some diagrams that way. And there's one called mermaid and there's a, there's a, you know, viz graph, I think is another one that's worked. Okay. But yeah, definitely. I, I did this for Waymark actually with the, you know, the, the AI system that has a bunch of different models that even for us, you know, on the development team, it's sometimes a little bit hard to remember, like, wait, which has to finish before the next thing, you know, well, what are we paralyzing and what's the dependency on what? So to just try to have that at a glance is something that we didn't have. And I was able to get like a pretty decent version of it from this like syntax, you know, that then could render deterministically into the visual form. But you're definitely right that it's like leaves a ton to the imagination compared to what, you know, a real infographic or, you know, a proper designer would do it still work close. Yeah, that, that's like one that like is commonly that, you know, people talk about like a lost common could, one could be uh, simple as something like, here's a picture of my, my house, my room in my house, my bedroom. I need to figure out a way. I want to figure out different combinations. If I put my, my bed on what, this side of the wall, what, which should I, might, which should my room look like? If I put my bed on the other side of the wall, keeping all the same objects in place, how would you reorganize my bedroom? Right. And if you, you could copy and paste that, you could put it in GPT 4B and it will spit something out. Right. But it's very hard to imagine what, and you, you have to now read this thing. It's extremely hard to reimagine your bedroom. But imagine if there were a, uh, an image model that could completely reorganize your bedroom and show you all the different ways that it could work. Right. Imagine that you could, like, you could, you could iterate with it. You could say, hey, um, what if the dresser was made out of this other material? What if it was a little bit bigger? What if the nightstand was, you know, um, uh, lower, right? There, there are a whole bunch of visions. So I think if you can try to imagine, you know, these little simple things that feel very hard today, it's very hard. Like, where do I go? What website do I go to? Okay. I got to like start drawing like lines and stuff. Ah, forget it. I don't want to do it too much work. So you can kind of try to imagine these circumstances where you're kind of iterating just like you are with language, but with something very visual, whether it's your home or, or something else, I think you start to get more out of it. You could do the same thing with like logos. You could say, I want my logo to be a little like this. Can you get rid of like the, the little um, swirl? Could you change it to like from circles to like rounded rectangles? Like you're able to kind of actually work with some like an artifact together you know, that, that's all virtually impossible to do. Uh, that's like another example of something that would be very hard to do with language. Uh, I think that there are like, there are, there are even bigger use cases in vision, you know, whether it's like something understanding that it's like your face versus like an intruder and a camera system, something that like learns that over time. There's just, there is a whole limit to what we probably can do with language. I think it's underappreciated with vision. And, all, and I think it's, it's just strictly because we're kind of trapped in like art world right now. Uh, and I think that's going to change very significantly this is the next year. I I have kind of two lines of, of thought going in my head at the same time. One is, how's that going to happen? You guys have just trained a foundation model from scratch yourselves. You know, I'd be interested to hear kind of what you think the trajectory of foundation models in Vision is going to be. And then I'm also really interested in, and it's a very general problem, although you have a particular form of it, for product owners, how do you build in a way that like balances the now and what people need to get utility from your product today versus like what is 
going to be needed or maybe no longer needed as the models themselves get better. I went into the, you know, the, the product and I was making some stuff in preparation for this. And I, I haven't, I have done it, you know, more than once between our episodes, but definitely was, you know, just catching up in the last couple of days. I see that there's like a lot of new features. I was going to ask, you know, what are some of your favorite new features? What are people getting the most utility from? And I still want to ask that. But I also now kind of want to ask like, how are you thinking about what features to build that are like patches for sort of, you know, model weaknesses that may not be needed in the future versus what things do you think are kind of always going to be non-model features? So there's a lot there. I'll shut up and you can take it all apart. No, 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 that, that that's great. You know, I think, I think the the last year has kind of made me see some of like the the community has done such an amazing effort at fine tuning models, finding fixes, being extremely clever, and it is it's exactly kind of like how you describe it. It's like for as as amazing of these feats as they are, it is a lot of patchwork. It's not a true it's not a true fix um, at a foundation model level. You know, there, there are models that fix hands, fix eyes. There are models that do um, ups, uh, upscaling to try to get more detail out of them. You know, there's, there's tons of amazing tools, but they're all they're all just patches. I think maybe the more, more maybe more surprising thing is we've been thinking a lot about like what 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 comes after just like text to image. What else is left? How do you get to a, a much deeper um, understanding of these? kinds of concepts. And so I think for the most part, we sort of think of it as like these three pieces around like, okay, how do we, how do we create something from nothing? How do we take existing pixels and manipulate them at a really high fidelity? And how do we understand the images a la kind of like GPT-4B? And then how do we like bring the three together? Because ideally that model understands a lot more um, and it's far less patchwork and it's far, far more uh, general than what we have today. We're, we're planning to be very focused this year on editing. So I think the first the first kind of thing is that I think the community and everybody involved, all the researchers involved, made this wonderful way of like creating amazing art. Sometimes it's very realistic. Sometimes it's just fun, entertaining, um, fantasy art, what have you. And I think that has driven some utility, but definitely not, not enough. Uh, I think the next thing is probably our kind of like not so secret plan that I'm happy to reveal is just that we're going to work on multitask editing and multitask editing is just, you know, kind of taking existing images and manipulating those pixels such that we can achieve anything. You know, there've been some kind of early versions of this that happened last year. You know, it should be anything from like, what would I look like if I were aged up, you know, at 65 years old or my son, what would I look like with a different hairstyle? Um, there are models out there from researchers that are trying to like replace, you know, clothes in a really high fidelity way, that should really be encompassed in a general model as well. Being able to do all kinds of things like that, being able to manipulate like some kind of interior design would be a good example of that. And then there should be kind of like more difficult things. So those would be, some of those would be kind of like local edits. And then there's like more global edits. Global edits would be like, you have a big scene that's clearly like a wintry scene um, that you might want to make like a spring or summer scene. And that means every object, everything in that scene has to be changed. Um, so that'd be a big global edit. I think that we need to get better and better at those kinds of things. Cause I think the utility will rise, uh, across customers who want to do more 
more valuable, more valuable things. And I think a lot of those things tend to be with real imagery. And then, and then I think we're gonna, we're also going to work on um, a model that's trying to like understand everything that's going on in an image. We need good understanding because that helps actually helps us train uh, the other two models. And so hopefully, hopefully by the end of the year, we're looking at something where we can kind of try to unify these three things into a single model that um, can kind of do more, uh, more surprising things, more surprising use cases. Um, just, just strictly for 2D images. You know, it's like we've kind of moved on to like video and people have moved on to video and stuff. And I think that's really wonderful, makes really amazing art. But I think that we still haven't quite like, we kind of haven't shown how big things could be, um, even just an image or just, just even on its own a hard modality. Hey, we'll continue our interview in a moment after a word from our sponsors. OmniKey uses generative AI to enable you to launch hundreds of thousands of ad iterations that actually work, customized across all platforms, with a click of a button. I believe in OmniKey so much that I invested in it and I recommend you use it too. Use CogRev to get a 10% discount. So how do you think the experience changes over time? Like today, again, I, I go in there, I can do the classical text to image prompt and get something out. Now I can also bring my own image and ask for modifications that are kind of holistic. Like I, you know, my, one of my early semi-viral tweets from last year was taking the ultrasound image of our now nine-month-old baby that was still in my wife's belly at the time and, you know, saying, what would this look like if it was a newborn? And it did a reasonably good job of that. I wouldn't say it was, you know, it was still in the uncanny valley, but it was like, you know, good enough that people were intrigued to see it. And you got a lot more features too, right? Now I can outpaint, I can mask and in-paint, I can start with like a line sketch. I can start with a depth map. I can start with, you know, probably a couple other things as well. You have kind of pre-rendering sort of features. There's like the intensity of the guidance. So there's all these kind of knobs and, and dials that have been added. Do some of those go away? Do we continue to add like all these sort of control elements or does it become more of a like just conversational UI again? I think some of the elements go away, right? I think some of the elements go away because uh, the model should have an understanding of depth. The model should have an understanding of edge lines. The model should have an understanding of color, lighting, right? Uh, the models shouldn't, shouldn't, you know, control net, for example, for these models is really great, innovative thing that came out last year, but the model should really understand that. You should be able to erase a part of an image and the model should understand that like, actually there is like a big depth component here and that I have to consider the shadows, or I have to consider what's in the foreground and the lighting related to a character or a subject, right? So I think. Definitely some of these things go away. And I think that, you know, in, for, for the most part, you know, we find that there are definitely a whole bunch of power savvy users that use these tools, but a vast majority of people definitely struggle. Definitely it's, it takes like some time and expertise and, um, and watching a couple of YouTube tutorials perhaps, uh, to understand these things. So I think those things kind of go away. I don't think it ends up being just text. I think text is great. Text is a really great kind of like absolute way that humans can like compress a very high dimensional concept in their mind to something simpler that they can input into a model. It's very hard to like imagine something like how would you take something that you're imagining and then giving it to the model? Well, maybe the best answer for that would be like another image. But other, one of my favorite examples is like the word, like the, the concept of like shattered glass, right? Shattered glass is like, we can, we all have a version of what we can imagine that looks like, but actually it's very difficult 
uh, to both have the same concept of what that means. Because there's so much entropy with shattered glass that you and I would have completely different imagination of how that would look and how the lighting would be and what color things would be like, right? But maybe you maybe you gave the model something that you like, right? Maybe you give it um, a style. A st- even style is really hard to describe to these things. Style can be a combination of different things that you like together. You know, uh, if you're thinking about like your brand, you might like, you might be inspired by multiple things and wish that something could look like, like all three of those things. Right. So I think my sense is that it's probably going to be a combination of language, which gives you some sense of that, but it's going to need something that's even higher dimensionality than that. So that it gets closer to what you want. A model that probably emits something visual probably should be very visual, right? It probably should be, you know, maybe it's using your finger on your phone and masking something. Um, certainly it's going to be typing something. Certainly it will be like, I like this, this, this thing out there in the world. Um, I think it might be, my guess is that vision models will probably have to be extremely multimodal compared to maybe the starting point of language. Yeah. When you said the, the bit about language and just the, the way that it allows us to compress what's in our head, my brain jumped to, well, what about just direct brain reading? I wonder if there is a, because we've seen some pretty interesting results over the last year of, and, you know, with still like fairly cumbersome hardware, but less cumbersome, you know, gradually over time. Do you envision a future where somebody sits down and puts like the playground crown on their head and sort of like doesn't have to say a word, but can instead kind of like the that classic scene from Back to the Future, you know, suction cup the thing to your head and then just kind of focus on your own like mental state, have, you know, kind of commune with the system and, and get your ideas out that way. I would have thought that was insane to ask, by the way, even a year ago, but it feels less insane today somehow. Yeah. I mean, it, it, we can get, we can first get words out of, out of, the, out of our brain. We can go from thought to word. Uh, that would be amazing. I, I don't know if we can do that. I actually haven't studied anything about brain trying to get like brain output to get to like any kind of accuracy i think i saw something maybe where like maybe maybe you can like move like an object like there's ways to like move left right up down or something like that but haven't seen i don't know if there's any research that's like thought to text there's thought to text there is also thought to image reconstruction it doesn't necessarily work as well as it might need to work but this is part of why i you know kind of have this AI scouting concept here. I'll I'll give you two links and you can uh, check these out at your, at your convenience. But one, the first one we had a guy named Tanishk. Yeah. I know Tanishk. What was really interesting about his was that it was low sample was required and they used existing foundation models and, and kind of figured out a way to, with like a relatively small per user sample map the brain activity into the kind of latent space necessary to then, you know, diffuse into the image. But the reconstructions are like really quite good. That one is an fMRI, if I recall correctly, which is like, you know, far from consumer. And then this other one from Facebook or Meta is magnetoencephalography, which is definitely still, you know, cumbersome, but like less so and also fast. This one, you can kind of see the accuracy is lower, but but, you know, if you can reconstruct what they're actually seeing, then, you know, if they close their eyes and just imagine stuff, you would imagine, you know, that, that could start to work as well. And I also do wonder just a, about the degree to which people, a big obsession of mine in general is kind of how the world begins to change in response to AI. And I, I definitely think that 
people can kind of train their own minds to like work with these systems and like these early results don't have any you know of that going on yet yeah i mean i think i think like the ultimate multimodal model at, at the end of the day it just turns it's like not really about tokens and language you know like like the, the vision transformers are just like taking tokens of an image they're like trying to create some kind of code book of images by taking patches of an image and then the language stuff is all some word stuff but it just seems like at some level it's just going to be something very byte level and and if you believe that it would just become byte level or some something lower something lower level than these two things then then it like starts to not matter so much you know whether it's like language or vision then it becomes something else that then it's like the models have it's almost like you've given the model like a representation that's like very normalized across all of these different modalities to get to some kind of unification of them and i do wonder i do wonder where it's headed you know i don't know i don't know right now i don't necessarily know that like actually maybe maybe the transformer is not the right thing or certainly not tokens of language are, the, are necessarily the right thing um it's probably too early to tell because maybe hardware is not even good enough yet maybe the compute performance is not good enough yet and there's still a ways to go to scale text or, or vision you know my first thought with like the brain thing was, I was like i wonder if it would be too high dimensionality i wonder if it'd just be such a yeah like like vision is already uh, um, a lot of input data so that so people tend to need to find a way to kind of like compress it down to something simpler um, or encode it rather. Um, so I mean, my first thought was, I was like, I wonder if the brain has um, very, very high dimensionality because I don't know anything about this. I suppose you could encode it too. But yeah, it certainly would be cool if you could like look at your, you know, your room and just sort of imagine what if it was there and somehow it kind of like knew that you could do that. Um, perhaps, perhaps text to you know whatever it's maybe not maybe not uh the ultimate like first in input maybe maybe it is thoughts um, or something like that well that's what i see if you can do thought to text then that's like the right primitive right then you can get from you know you can get to text to uh maybe anything whether it's like audio or images or uh, other text and then you'd have the right maybe like way to decode like go from thoughts to like whatever you want so yeah i wonder if anyone is working on thought to text there are some thought to text ones as well. I wouldn't say, you know, they're kind of in the same general ballpark as the the thought to image where it's like, whoa, that's striking, you know, and it is, they do it a very similar way. Like you read a, a sentence or a paragraph and as you're kind of, you know, processing that language, they're kind of trying to reconstruct what you have been processing. And they do get like a decent reconstruction it's not perfect in the same way that, you know, these image reconstructions are not perfect, but they're definitely directionally right. You know, you look at it and you're like, you're not guessing. That's for sure. You know, the resolution is not there, but the, that, that they are onto something is like pretty clearly true. I'd love to spend more time on brain interfaces. I have no idea. When in doubt, go back and, you know, see what Kurzweil said in the nineties. And then, you know, it, we're like getting to the time when, when it was supposed to happen and, you know, that guy has been, I, I've started to use the term Kurzweil's revenge because I came across his work in like the mid 2000s. At that time, it was like, you know, the exponential curve that he was projecting, we were still in the low part. And so it was like, you know, he said this five years ago, but not much was supposed to happen in these five years. So whatever, like maybe it'll happen. Then 10 years went by and it was like 2015. And it was like, well, he was wrong about everything. And, you know, this guy, what a dreamer. And then now here we are. It's like, actually, you know, exponentials are crazy. He's maybe a lot more 
right than than not. So his he, apparently he's got a new book coming, and it's the singularity is nearer or something. I, I think is the I'm not sure if that was the joke title or the real title. We write for most of the time when I talk to people about a unified vision model, even futurists in the field have often struggled, have often not thought about it. A lot of people are sort of trapped in this kind of like we just we, we we're just trying to we're just trying to do text to image and um they haven't really thought too much deeper about that or or the other version of this is is like a very narrow use case right like e-commerce product placement or swap you know changing clothes or um filters like on snapchat that kind of computer vision stuff but that kind of computer vision stuff was very you know 2000 you know 2020 you know, 2019 style AI, right? That was pre-generative AI, pre kind of like big generative models that can, I mean, the promise of these generative models, foundation models specifically is that they generalize so well to these other kinds of things that we're surprised by them every day that we use them. We're like excited about GPT-5 because we're not because not, and we don't even know what it will do, but because we're surprised by what we're, 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 uh, we're excited by what we'll be surprised about. And I think that that same moment just hasn't happened with vision. So it's so I I, I feel like I've kind of caught you a little bit off guard during this uh, this chat because. But I just wanted to mention to you that most of the time when I'm talking to people with vision, they don't see it either. Um, oh, there are a few people who hired those people <laughs> that happen to that have like kind of the ambition or goal to try to do something a lot bigger. But we do not have a general vision model of any sorts, um, and you can tell you can tell by uh, by its limited utility maybe maybe it will be clear towards the end of the year when we go whoa i didn't know that we could do that yeah i think that is a good point of comparison you know that i would agree that the sort of surprising capability doesn't seem to have happened as much on the image side as it has on the language side so it's a it's a good contrast but just consider if all if everyone had open ai um and so like there's this wonderful huge language race it's great. I love it. I want people to focus on that because we're focused on vision. But I think that, but consider for a moment if all OpenAI was doing this vision, you know, um, if we could imagine that there was actually, you know, a version of OpenAI that was super laser focused on vision. There, and right now there isn't, as far as I, as far as I know, there might be, but I don't think there is. You know, what what would the model like? What would these models look like? I think they would be far more superior than Dolly three, vastly better than that. Yeah. What do you, I guess one interesting question is like, what does and doesn't exist in the world that, you know, is kind of in text, like everything, you know, ish exists, right? You may not have access to all of it, but it's all kind of out there. It feels like in one way or another with images and with the text image use case, you know, the images were never captioned with the intent of like allowing you to create images in a text to image sort of way. So it's sort of this like found data set concept that, oh, hey, you know, look at all this web scale data, these captions are like super noisy. Obviously, we've gotten better at that, you know, filtering, etc. over time. But, you know, largely, it is still kind of derived from this, like, the fact that people happen to, you know, caption their images sometimes, I guess, there's maybe just a lot of missing data where like, you could say, here's an image, and I want, you know, it reminds me of like the bad Photoshop memes online right where people are like oh i want my you know boyfriend to be over here or whatever then the you know the person like makes a mockery of their request but more general you know more like productively 
it seems like what's missing is that we just don't have those before and after transformations in image almost at all, right? Like the first thing is there a lack of training data basically relative to say like language where maybe there's like vast quantities of, you know, structured and good training data. Is that kind of what you're saying? Yeah. Like the transformations that you would want to do now that you're like starting to imagine what a robust AI tool would look like are just like very hard for humans to do, very rare online, you know, require like advanced Photoshop skills historically and just just don't exist and, and just aren't posted all that much, I would guess. It turns out with vision is perhaps more uh, more prone to being able to succeed with even synthetic data. You know, what one benefit of all these images is that, uh, you know, you can make, you, it's very easy to make lots, lot, generate lots of them and annotate them and change things with them. So it turns out that like, actually you can like probably pre-train a good model and ground treat stuff. But then there are a lot, all these like wonderful other models that uh, you can use to train on probably synthetic data to get a really good new kind of like general model that's capable of new things. A really good example of this um, for for folks is uh, maybe like the thing that like put me onto this most early was um, struck Pixapix like early, I think last year, where so much of it is actually just synthetic data. I think its overall performance was not... Um, world changing or anything, but it gives you kind of a glimpse of what it could be if given, I mean, this was just one researcher at, you know, Berkeley, I think under Ephros. So I think like given a, given a team that really cares, what, what would, what could it be? How good could it be? So I think that's one thing that might be surprising regarding like this debate around training data. Um, the second thing I would say is that part because of the massive revolution with text and in specific, some of these like text vision models, these multimodal models that are kind of getting built now, um, whether that's at Google or um, OpenAI with GPT-4B, or um, there's some really amazing open source ones um, by students in academia. Um, I think this guy named, I don't know, sorry if I butcher the way to pronounce his name. I think his name is Haushin Lin or something like that. Um, he did a lot, um, he did Lava 1.5 with some other people. And so there's just this, I think going into this year, one thing that I think will probably be true, and it's kind of a natural progression from where we are with language, is yeah, and, and you probably need to augment language somehow. Is a multi, is really great multimodal models, and it just turns out that if like you scale up these multimodal models, you know, with text understanding and, and vision, obviously, then you can even do more capable things. It might be surprising, like how that can help with vision uh, more significantly. Maybe not too surprising. But certainly the language part was very important for the for the multi for these multimodal models to be as powerful as they are. For example, you know, hopefully image things like se- image segmentation get better, but even caption gets better. You know, one one thing everybody knows in the field for vision, or at least with graphics, is that that Lion data set is really poorly annotated. It, it's it's sort of a best case effort, but it's very poorly done. Right. Um, you know, I think the folks that made it did the best they could, but the data's not great. Uh, and, and so if you have a multimodal model, that's extremely good, you know, do, the Dolly three paper talked about how that team just completely recaptioned the data set to be more accurate. And then that significantly improved prompt alignment for the image models. And now you get better, you get better prompt alignment. And now suddenly, like, suddenly, like if you ask the models to, you know, one little test that I like is, uh, create an image where, um, you've got four bottles and they're numbered one through four, but ordered backwards, right? You try to do these little puzzle challenges for the model. And suddenly, like these kinds of spatial reasoning tasks uh, become possible, 
or if you should do recaptioning on text synthesis starts to get better, performance starts to dr dramatically increase. Now, now we're starting to see kind of like Midjourney and Dolly 3 be better at text. So it just turns out that like actually the overall progression of the entire AI field helps quite significantly with vision. And so I think this is just going to keep happening. So if I'm understanding correctly how you are expecting things to develop, it's almost kind of a mirror image in some ways to language where the language progress that's at least like the, the kind of canonical breakthroughs seem to be just scaled up, you know, and then, oh my God, look at this. We've got few shot learning, these kind of, you know, quote unquote, emergent capabilities that we didn't train for. And, you know, now of course we're refining that and we're doing curriculum learning and alignment and a million things. But it was kind of like first the brute force fact that you just dump all the text in, run it, and like amazing something amazing comes out, and now we'll refine from there. On the vision side, it sounds like you're the the path is more of okay, let's ha we have all these different specialist models, and now those are going to help us kind of create the super general data set which doesn't exist totally as needed in the wild, and then we can kind of go like. Captain Planet with our, you know, forces combined, like now we can sort of summon the truly generalist vision model that you're dreaming of. They're kind of like these pros and cons, right? Like on one hand, like images are just so rich in terms of information relative to language. Just look outside your window for a minute and try to really look at every object. You know, right now I'm looking at like plants and like even just this, even just looking at a plant, you can kind of see like, how do the leaves fall? How do they interact together? How does lighting react to the, to the plant? And some of this is graphics knowledge, but some of this is just world knowledge, right? A plant on a roof or how buildings look or how they're situated, right? So images on one hand are extremely rich in terms of data. They're so rich, but then they sort of lack kind of like the right annotation and labeling. And so on the other hand, like text perhaps, it has really great, rich, wonderful labeling inherently, right? That's like just inherent in language anyway. And, but on the other hand, they're very lost. It's very, language is very lost. We don't have that many words to describe things, right? And the words certainly are, are not descriptive enough. So on the other hand, there's kind of cons to this and they have different utilities in our, in our life. I can't say that they're like, it makes sense that this happened, but it just so happens to be that we've got these amazing text models that are starting to lead to amazing multimodal models with vision. Uh, and, and that's probably going to help us like fix some of our understanding of the images, like what's really going on in some of these images, where are things located? Why are they the way they are? And so my guess is like, you know, if you think of vision is in my mind, I kind of like look at a vision as like maybe about a year or two behind where we are with language. And it's wonderful actually that, um, these multimodal models are getting so powerful because they're going to be very helpful with vision. They're going to lead to vastly better use cases for vision than they do today. Uh, that's a good guide to what the future might have in store for us. How are you thinking about building a business through this maturation of the technology? Like, are you trying to grow a lot of revenue today? How much do you care about adoption and your sort of relative position in the market, you know, compared to other options? You know, from a funding standpoint, I know you had some capital already on hand when you pivoted into this, but you know, I imagine more would be helpful. Like, how are you thinking about 
what do you need to do to raise more money if you need or want to do that? And just the timing of it. It's like very weird, right? Because we're, it seems like unlike previous technology waves, so much is in the future relative to what you can achieve today. And I wonder how you think about like metrics, milestones, you know, kind of proof points versus this like grand strategy, how you kind of balance those and, and try to make them work together. Our overall main quest is to make like a unified vision model you know, whether it's images, video, 3D, et cetera, something that has true general understanding of pixels and such. But I think like a very simple thing we're doing this year is we're only going to be working on two things. We're going to work on making a really great uh, graphics model for just static 2D images because the, a vast majority of the utility is still gone unsolved. And so, yeah, I mean, I, I think it's it's not that complicated, I think, in the, in the sense that Right now, if you want to do things with Photoshop or Lightroom or Illustrator or whatnot, uh, I'm not an expert at these tools. I, you know, there was a time where I was like doing Photoshop tutorials in high school, trying to like compete in logo contests and stuff. Since then, my skill has greatly atrophied. But you know, I'm not an expert at this, and I think a vast majority of humanity is not. It seems it seems like there's clearly like people that buy buy things and manipulate and want to buy graphics or manipulate pixels and wish they could and just don't or just you take the picture to get a better one and then there's people that have like really amazing skill they're expert color graders um they know how to get rid of like dangly hairs in your wedding picture they um make logos in photoshop whatever uh or, or they're really amazing illustrators and um it takes a lot of skill to be that good and so, you know, I think to the extent to which we can kind of like give more of humanity the ability to do that kind of work, but kind of like own, like be the, you know, instead of going through a third party, be able to like actually do some of these things on their own very easily. I think that will open up a lot of doors for us. And so I think we'll be very focused on just creating images and adding them uh, throughout the year. And I hope that leads to a lot of really happy users for whom I think have no alternative right now other than kind of asking a friend or going somewhere uh, where there's is someone that is talented, hiring somebody basically. That feels like a little bit of a change from last year and maybe from kind of, you know, the the usual advice of like fast iteration, talking to users. This, this feels a little bit more, and I've heard similar comments from Sam Altman recently where he was like, you know, at YC, I told everyone, you know, launch super early, iterate super frequently, you know, and then in OpenAI, we took four years to launch anything. And, you know, we had like a massive, you know, capital outlay. And, you know, we didn't really know what the use case was going to be. It sounds like you're kind of shifting a little bit more toward that approach where you're like, build something truly awesome. We kind of know what that is in our gut. And then everything else will kind of follow from there. We've had, maybe we didn't talk about it uh, last year too much, but kind of had the same plan since the company started. But I do want to say like, over the last year, we shipped like 100 things. Yeah, the product has changed a lot. No doubt about that. Every time I've gone in there, it has been notably more feature rich for sure. You know, we have a Slack channel where we see every complaint from a user. You know, I don't like the hands. You change too much. How do you, you know, I get DMs from customers or even friends. Hey, how do I make this character kind of consistent? And the kind of like combination of these things turns out like there's no like one, there's no quick fix um, to solve all of these things. Some, I think there are certain class of problems where you kind of, you accumulate them and you go, well, actually there is no quick fix for this. The worst product that we could make is a product where we have a, a button that's like the fix hands button. And then there's like a, 
um, fix the eyes button. And then there's like a, you know, um, the character consistency button. Like nobody wants to use a product like that. That was a very complicated product to use. You have to know where everything is and then people are confused and you have to figure out ways to train them. You got to train a whole language model on top of that. Right. And then you know your language models, like choosing which model to use at what point. And then of course, like now your entrance times are going up because we're using each model in the pipeline to fix one thing. And then this model fixes the thing, but then it kind of made the other, some other thing worse, right? This is not a great experience. And so the, this is all patchwork stuff. That's just not going to lead to a world-class product. And so, you know, I think my belief is that we've actually distilled, we know what users are frustrated about every single day with uh, the current state of the art. And, and you know, we, we bought a lot of GPUs and we found a lot of really amazing researchers. Um, and so it's not like, I think we're going to go solve the, you know, the, the, every imaginable editing and, and graphics problem, you know, day one, or even, in, or we're going to wait three years and then we're going to have something. I think it's, I think that like, as long as we can make a few things very useful that are generally useful, that attract a lot of users uh, for whom like, go, wow, I didn't know. I'm finally happy someone solved this problem. I think that you can, you can build like a great, you can, you can start from something kind of small that starts to become bigger. And I think a good example of this actually is like, if we look at mid journey and what it looked like kind of early last year compared to what it looks like this year, you know, it, it might seem surprising that anyone paid for anything early last year. Right. But nonetheless, um, you know, nonetheless, it was the best at the time. And then over time, you know, these things kind of grow and they sort of mature. And so maybe what we'll have is something that's like a PS2 or a PlayStation 1, but it was still very fun to play or or use rather. Uh, And then like over time, you know, we'll certainly keep making our our version of our models better and better. And so the use cases, I hope, will expand. One other big picture question I wanted to get your take on. Obviously, we're in this moment of all this stuff is so new. You know, people are, the fallout is just beginning, mostly positive, some negative. And we really don't have new kind of guiding rules or principles in many cases, even for like, how should we handle all this? Like, what should the rules be? I just did another episode on New York Times versus OpenAI. And I guess my, my super big picture question to you is like, do you have any thoughts at this point as to what the rules should be? Like, that could be at the training data level, you know, should everything, you know, I think Japan is kind of going this direction where they're going to make everything available for everybody to train on. You could imagine people should be, you know, compensated if they're included. You could imagine people should be able to opt out, but not necessarily be entitled to compensation. You could imagine like, I should not be able to ask for everything in the style of Greg Redkowski, or maybe that's okay. You know, can I make Mario and Luigi on Playground AI? There's just so many questions. I don't expect you to answer them all, but I wonder what your kind of emerging sense for what the rules of the road for the generative AI era should be. I try to sometimes t- put myself in the shoes of, uh, you know, let's say the artists or the people making these images, photographers, whoever, you know, because uh, yeah, obviously we have a irrational self-interest on training on data like that. You know, we d- we were we were the first site. You know, I read I read Greg Rakowski's story. It's kind of op-ed and. Tried to like try to understand him um, better to the extent I can. I've not talked to him, but uh, you know, I've looked at his his page on DeviantArt. I get his style, um, and I think there are like two things that are kind of happening. One is nobody, people don't really want to make art like Greg Rakowski. It's not very it's not very exciting to me. The users that use these products are actually people that like think of themselves as artists in some ways, and nobody great people that are artists don't really want to copy another artist claim their art. There's no pride in that, right? It's not like these people are making images and they're really selling them for you know, 
thousands of dollars or anything. So they're not taking great. I don't think a vast majority of people are taking pride in that. And the other thing is, you know, after I read his his article, I one of the, we were the first site ever, and I think the only site still to this day for whatever reason, uh, where if there's a prompt on our site and someone references his name, we directly link back to his page. We actually give him. We actually call it additional credit. Literally saying, say additional credit, say wherever Kausen link back because one of the things he said was that in Google search, now it's like people can't even find him. And I, and I thought, well, maybe one way that we could at least help him is helping people find him, find his actual art, pay for it, buy it, whatever, at least give him fame, some other way to evolve in a world where like maybe if the pain was growing for him, maybe we could use that a little bit. Um, so I think there's small things that we can do. I'm not saying that that like fixes and alleviates the issue for Greg in any shape or form, just saying that I think there might be some small things that we can do. I think some bigger things, you know, one, the other reality is that, is that, you know, it's not like you can't make Mario and Luigi in Photoshop or Illustrator, right? And what, and the, the rules around that are like, of course, you and I can gain the skills and we can make Mario and Luigi or Mickey Mouse or, or whatever, but we can't just go run around like starting to sell t-shirts with like Nintendo branding either, right? And so I think there's like another world where uh, there's kind of a balance point where like, it, it might be, it might be vast, it might be generally okay to make Right. Um, in fact, many brands are perfectly fine with fan art or whatever. Um, but when then, when then there's kind of this question of commercial use, that's where things kind of like stop. And I think that's like a fair area to say, oh, you know, people are just kind of having fun. But, you know, when they start selling t shirts in the thousands with kind of like a bizarro world looking Mickey Mouse, maybe that's not okay. Right. Um, and so I think that that's like probably, probably okay too. And I, I think it's going to be very hard, even if the model are not trained necessarily on like Mickey Mouse or Mario and Luigi. I think it's going to be very hard to get these models. At some point, like the models will have some representation of it, even if it hasn't necessarily strictly seen, you know, even if you go through the, try your best to comb through the data set, you know, there'll always be something missing or it will just have like some way of like understanding concepts of it. So I think that's like a very impractical thing. I think the genie is a little bit out of the bottle, but I think it's better. It might be better to actually talk about like use as opposed to like, strictly um, training data. That's kind of my view. I feel like there, there needs, I also think the last part of this is maybe how fast it goes. If this whole thing is very gradual, then I think like probably society will find like some way to assimilate to it. I think if, if it's vastly faster than that, if it's like a step function thing each time, then I think, I think that we definitely need to do something about that. I think that who it's impacting like very much needs to be considered. It cannot just be like thrown away and you can't ask people to evolved upskill, um, you know, something that they've trained on doing their own, like something, some craft that they've been doing for a decade or two and ask them to like kind of upskill and evolve and catch up to the times within a couple of years. So I don't think that's like uh, a real rational path. So those, that's kind of like my rough triangulation of things. My feeling around like rev share on training data, it just seems like it's going to disappoint people more than it's going to, you know, be practical and helpful. So I'm, I'm a little less sure on how we would really achieve that. Yeah, it's tough, right? If you are the artist that used to charge however many, or even just, you know, the PowerPoint technician that used to charge however many dollars for a job, and now that can be done for, you know, a cent or whatever on a technology tool, like the rev share on that cent is not, you know, it's not going to buy too much. Yeah, the, the, this, you know, I, I make music, so I sometimes think about like, what if people would train on my music? What if I was a bigger artist and they trained on music? Kind of how would I feel? And like this sort of 
rev share model, like streaming revenues are really bad for music artists. This like penny per thing always makes the artists feel like they're they're greatly undervalued. It leaves tons of resentment in the industry. So, you know, I'm not so sure um, about that. On the other hand, though, I think artists very much crave like an audience, and, like ways that they can like it. Ma- making Rebrickowski's art is definitely not the same as like buying his art. I think that's like a very different relationship people have with artists. You know, if I make a song that's exactly like Avicii, uh, people will be like, you just sound like Avicii, but they're not, it doesn't mean my song will become big in the world because people have built the relationship with the artist. Uh, and so, you know, I just, I think that something that's like really catering to helping kind of give kind of a spotlight to the artists, the real people involved in doing some of this stuff, I think would be very helpful because I think there's still a big audience of people that want that. Um, even if you can reproduce the same exact image or something like it. So how fast do you think it's going to go? And do you think we are headed for kind of a new social contract? I mean, I'm, I'm getting like UBI vibes a little bit from a couple of your comments there. No, I, I don't I don't have any strong opinions around how, how to solve it. I, I think that there are much better minds, much better people are, are well-versed in trying to understand like what, what happens with technological change? How do we retool people? How do we, you know, maybe, maybe it becomes like a tax. I don't know. Yeah. Maybe, maybe it is kind of like a UBI tax sort of thing for certain people, for certain uh, industries. Um, certainly investing and helping people like upskill, you know, one, one funny thing out of the art debate was I once taught DM'd with someone who really hated the AR, AI art stuff like a year and a half ago and some some of these people don't want to retool they just like enjoy one of them said i just enjoy drawing you know i don't want to retool i don't want to get new skills i just i enjoy this craft and so i think there's like also a practical reality about that you know you can't ask people to retool when they don't enjoy the craft anymore um, because they enjoyed it the way that it was so I, i definitely think there'll be some version of this I don't know how I don't know how you distribute money like that. Um, I don't have any sense. I do think that I do think the pace is very it's going to be very fast though. I don't think it can be ignored. Uh, I think it would be I think we will be making a very big mistake of the technology industry if we just sort of say throw caution to the wind and kind of go we're uh, we're just going to do this very quickly. We don't care who it impacts. I think that the last decade of technology and the tech industry in particular has showed that when we do that. We really disenfranchise people and um, that creates kind of like a bad uh, circumstance for our industry. And I, I hope that we've learned that lesson. Yeah, I totally agree. Okay. One one more little follow-up because I can't resist. I've been thinking lately, not so much for the art side, but I, there's probably a lot of commonalities. What are the minimum standards that AI application developers should be expected to uphold meaning you know if you didn't do this you are worthy of like shame within the industry even if there are no you know laws yet on the books to control what happens i wonder if you have any thoughts as to you know kind of what ai developers should demand of one another presumably there will be actual rules coming but as we kind of ease into that and hopefully maybe even can inform what they might look like so they don't end up being dumb which is a very real risk i think you know, what would be a good sort of self-governing, you know, maybe just the kernel of a self-governing standard that we can all kind of 
say, hey, this is we got to do this, guys, at least. There's already kind of like a pretty reasonable consensus around safety. And unfortunately, safety kind of got wrapped around overloaded with like alignments and stuff. But and so I try to come up with like a different word sometimes for situations. Any Anyone operating these malls has seen extremely bad actors. We, we all have like our version of the story that just seems extremely, extremely bad. And so there's just general evil out there and people, how they're using these tools. And so, you know, we, one of the things that we did at Playground is the existing state of the art kind of like safety filter that sort of stops, uh, regardless of like your point of view, you know, we don't, we don't personally want like new content on our site, for example, and, and, and other forms of content like that. And I think, you know, so we, we ended up like training a new sort of state of the art safety filter that went, went further. Of course, like it helps us. We don't have to moderate as much. But also just like it just reduces significant uh, evil that tends to occur in the world. Not, not that nude images in particular are like evil, but like there are definitely class of images that are more evil or illegal in, in our country than than um, than other classes of images. And so I think they're, you know, I just think like people using images for like deep fakes and using it out of revenge and um, how we're going into like a new election year how things are going to be manipulated, how how we're going to explain to our, our aunt or our uncle or our parents or a brother and sister that like that thing that they saw on the internet was actually not real, <laughs> even though maybe it's in their narrative, it actually technically wasn't real. So I think just like combating just the sheer disinformation, misuse, evil that like might occur using these tools, because the tools tend to be extremely powerful. And so they have incredible amounts of value for the world. But it turns out that that like can totally be used for like nefarious things. And so I just think that that seems like the most basic thing that we can all do. And I kind of wish, you know, one thing that I wish is that the safety parts of this business were probably, I wish they were a lot more open, actually. You know, like, you know, OpenAI has like a moderation model. We use it. It's free. We use it. They don't charge you anything for it unless you, know, you use too much of it. But uh, too much of it is a very high threshold. And I just wish that maybe we'd have like a far more open collaboration around any of this kind of stuff because we all have different kinds of data and we would all do better if we worked a little bit better together on this. And it would be better to have like a, a state of the art model. Um, it's not too, it's not too easy. It's not that difficult for like nefarious actors to test these things and try to like work around them. So I think we could beat this cat and mouse race if there was more. A larger set of companies working on an open set of safety models. And I don't think it would take away from anyone's like core IP or anything like that. And I think the world would be better off for it. And that one might be a very, you know, the model ends up, the model's performance would end up being kind of like a definitive answer to your question around like, what should we all be doing that is like a, you know, minimum moral standard? Well, actually, the minimum moral standard is high dimensionality too. It could be encapsulated in this model that we all work on together and we all contribute together and the best researchers in the field work on together. It's a beautiful vision. The opportunity and the peril of generative AI, I think very well articulated there. I think that's a great note to end on. I will say again, Suhail Doshi, thank you for being part of the Cognitive Revolution. Thanks for having me. It is both energizing and enlightening to hear why people listen and learn what they value about the show. So please, don't hesitate to reach out via email at tcr at turpentine.co, or you can DM me on the social media platform of your choice.